and welcome to Plants and Puppets, a podcast where we talk about plants and the things they do. Hi, I'm Yoram. Ooh, Yoram is also excited. <laughs> Today's theme is Good News Week. Good things have happened Ooh. since we last talked to you and we want to celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> I think. It's been, I want to discuss good things. It's been like, it's been a week that felt like the whole year of 2020 in terms of yeah. it didn't end, but finally it did and it was very good good things happened um a couple of days ago there was still the excitement and now i mean it's a news cycle right a new state they focus on the negative things but i remember hearing and seeing images from people celebrating in in the streets and being filled with joy when it was finally cold that Biden won the race. And I, yeah, I also, I felt very joyful when I heard that. When I mean, even if the feeling of joy you have is just relief, like maybe that's 2020 is like what used to be relief is now joy. That's also okay. But I mean, there's also been some other good news that's come out in the recent days. So um, like there was a study that um, showed that like we're better at dealing with COVID. So people are less likely to die if they get to hospital. There's this COVID vaccine, which has what 90% efficiency, which is pretty promising. Um, again, like there's things to do in, in the future, but that's good news. Um, there's an even better news as far as an HIV vaccine goes. So um, Carbotagravir, I think is a name which is just finishing finished some rounds of testing in a female population. They previously already did the testing in men and it's got just super promising results. And in fact, I think they, in both cases, they cut the trials short because the results were so good so quickly. Yeah. And they're like, this is much better than what we had before. So let's just go with this. Um, I quite like the, the vaccine story, like the HIV story, because um, I mean, it's not technically a vaccine. It doesn't work over the, I don't I don't know how it works with the immune system, but it's not that you get like one shot and then you're immune for, for a long time, but instead you have to take an oral dose of um, this drug every eight weeks. Um, and then you are sort of um, preemptively, What's it like? There is a word for that. It's a preventive measure, essentially, for for HIV. The previous one was the oral pill, and this one is now injection, right? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it's uh, I always mix the two up. Yeah, it's it's now it's an injection. So it's also yeah, it's improved not only that there's more um, efficacy or efficiency or whatever the right word is here, but it's also a, a nicer way to take it as far as not having to take it continuously yeah i mean it's nicer that you have to take it only every eight weeks i don't know if i would prefer a pill or um, a shot but i definitely prefer a shot every eight weeks over a pill every single day as somebody who personally struggled very hard to remember to take her birth control i strongly recommend getting something where somebody else sticks it into you <laughs> <laughs> yeah she said no Ironically, um, but yeah, it's um, it's a very good story there. Um, in sub-Saharan Africa is where they did the the research, and um, yeah, as you said, they cut the trials short. But what uh, I found important to read in the WHO article about it is that all of the um, patients that took part in the study they um, will get the drug until the end of the study, even though they cut the study short. It doesn't mean that they're now left unprotected. And also the ones that were in sort of the control group with the previous drug um, that had to be taken daily, they can choose to opt into the other path of the trial, oh, great. into the eight-week, um, uh, every eight-week a shot trial that's more efficient um, and yeah, easier to easier to do. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was that. That got me really exciting. Excited. I mean, the COVID vaccine is also great, um, but this one hasn't been through peer review yet, and uh, the the results haven't been properly published yet. It's just um, the uh, phase three trial that has been successful, and it's sort of company news that we are reading now. Um, so we're linking an article on Nature that um, addresses the still open questions, but still there's there's reason to be optimistic because even if it's sort of a less good vaccine, which would me give us only like six months of immunity, um, for example, it's something that's unknown now, like how long does it actually last? But even if it would be just a short period of time, it would still be a major breakthrough for um, to fight COVID. It's really exciting. But yeah, exciting things happening. <laughs> um, on slightly more local news, my exciting things that are happening is that I saw a fox and then I saw an orange cat. And I proceeded to send a photograph of the orange cat to my friends and say, I saw a fox. And I have to say, I'm really disturbed at the fact that none of my friends then replied saying, Tegan, you're an idiot. That's not a fox. That's a cat. Like, 
I actually think at this point that my friends just want me to become a tyrant because I should really be corrected for these deliberate mislabelings, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I told you already, it could also be a different uh, point of view. It could be that we all think that you are already perfect as you are. And so we, there's no need to correct you. Um, so I think that was your second response. Your first response is, I don't want you to get better. I want you to plateau, which is like, firstly, horrible. And secondly, also, I wouldn't be getting like, I wouldn't be plateauing. I would be getting actively worse because every time I say something that's fake news and you like allow that to sit or even encourage it um that's just making me more confident to say more bullshit which nobody needs honestly <laughs> i would like to mention that my mother like immediately responded and be like tegan that don't be stupid that's a cat like just immediately cut like shut that <laughs> down see we all rely on your mother being still the educational force in your life and and your friends are your supportive force in your life that accept you the way you are no matter what you do do you want to talk about something depressing, Yoram? I'm, I'm seeing some like notes here about a certain Yoram. Welcome back, guys. Um, what you don't know is that Yoram and I just broke off for like a half an hour ranting scream <laughs> at each other, which happens quite often, I would say, on this podcast yeah. journey. Although um, I want to say that we didn't rant at each other about each other. Like we had other topics that are not us. <laughs> But we talk to each other about this. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can already tell that we rant quite a lot. But like, often <laughs> Yoram and I are like the only ones who can bear the incessant ranting to the same level. So we have to rant at each other because everybody else in our lives would just kill us. I would guess. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> but that's done now. Um, luckily, you don't have to hear it. So now we're going to move on to something else, which is I would just like to comment that. Instagram feeds me ads. So you guys all know I'm on Instagram, but it, it feeds various ads based on I honestly do not know what. And <laughs> earlier this morning or a couple of days ago, maybe, um, I got an, an ad for men's fashion, which is basically indicating to me that men are going to start wearing paperboy hats again. Um, <laughs> Britches, so like those kind of brown balloony things that only go up to like just below your knee, your mid-calf, and then high socks. Um and personally, I'm looking forward to this. I feel this is just, it's happening and I'm ready for it. Yeah, I, I, I'm seeing the picture. You posted a picture in our notes. And um, yeah, I, I now that I, I, I see the detail that it's an Instagram ad, but before that, I would have thought it's just like a newspaper clipping of something like, in the 1920s, this boy stood alone in the forest. It's um, ridiculous. But, <laughs> but. Like, in the last few years, men have been encouraged to wear, like, expressive socks, I would say. So, yeah. Like, showing one socks has come into fashion. And at the same time, the hipsters have been shortening their pant length. So, like, having cropped trousers is also the fashion. So, I can only see this as, like, the logical culmination of those things has meant that we're all going to start dressing like 20s paper boys. <laughs> yeah. Looking forward I to I don't really... Like, it's, it's sort of classy... But I also, um, yeah, it's it's also a look. I don't know if I could pull it off. Timeless, um, some would say, Yarm. Yeah, I don't know. I I always feel like there's not that many people in the world that really are wanting the 20s back. There's like a certain ruling class that likes the way some things happened in the 20s. But I think there's I many think it's people. acceptable to desire the fashion and not actually the era. That's completely okay. Ah, uh, yeah. I, I always have a problem with that. To me, these things are very much linked. Um, so, but anyway. Um, anyway. Let's talk we, a little bit about We finished plants. our rant when I said, oh, <laughs> we still have the paper to talk about. We should stop ranting. And Yoram said, Tegan, we still have the entire podcast to do. So let's get onto that. Shall we do the paper? Let's do the paper. <laughs> It's the paper of the week. And this week, Yoram chose the paper. <laughs> yeah, I chose the paper this week. Um, I chose the paper called Sterile Spikelets Contribute to Yield in Sorghum and Related Grasses by Taylor Aubuchon Elder. I hope that was uh, basically correct. Um, from the lab of Elizabeth A. Kellogg, um, published in the plant cell in November this year. Yeah, and as the title suggests, it's about sorghum. Um, it's a, it's a crop which I think is your recent obsession. I would say you're quite into sorghum right now. But it, it just pops up to me. It's not that I actually care that deeply about the plant, although I think we should. Um, that's something we come to later. But it's sort of something that also um, 
followed us uh, when we followed for the Plant Book Club, the other podcast that we did. We read a book that had like an entire chapter that was much too long about the history of sorghum. And mm. I think it's also called um, millet, basically a broom millet, broom corn, broom millet. Yeah, something like that. But that gives me now whenever I read sorghum or read about it, it gives me this like flashback of being very, very bored, um, which is really unjust to to the plant because sorghum is is um, a really cool plant. Uh, it's not that common that we eat it in the in the global north, but in uh, on the African continent. Um, and many other parts of the world, it feels uh, um, a very large part of the population. So um, there's some numbers that say it's about 500 million people um, that are fed by sorghum. And uh, that makes it the fifth most important crop uh, of mankind. Um, yeah, and one of the reasons that it's so important is that it can grow under quite harsh conditions um, where other major crops like wheat wouldn't survive so well. So on very poor soils or under like varying um, climates, um, survives with hot with dry with salt tolerance heavy rains it has a ton of basically clever adapt adaptations which help it yeah just persevere where all the other crops would fail yeah and it does this um this a special type of photosynthesis photosynthesis called c4 photosynthesis um and uh, it's one of the few grains that do it like that so um it's therefore very efficient and um, I, I read that it has the highest yield per unit of mechanical or human energy inputs of any major crops. That, that means that you don't have to put in a lot of work to get a lot of calories out of it. Um, so some say that there might come a time um, or it might be smart to, to extend the growing uh, range so that we um, exchange some of our wheat plots, for example, for sorghum plots and use that as a grain as well. But um, so that's the crop that we're talking about today. But what we want to talk about it is not how amazing and durable it is, but kind of its weirdnesses. So sorghum has this quite bizarre morphology, or at least to me, it seems very bizarre. So it has these little um, structures that develop into the grain and they're called spikelets. But instead of having just one spikelet, which, you know, gets filled up with grain as the, the plant grows and, and, you know, develops, it actually has two of them. And only one of those two makes the seeds, whereas the other one is either completely sterile or only produces pollen. So the male um, gamete sexual... sexual um. Yeah. Although I don't know if, if they even produce pollen in... Uh, in sorghum, in sorghum I don't think so, but in other um, yeah. similar related plants, sometimes it, it can produce pollen. Yeah. So there's kind of this question of why have two and why have only one of them which actually makes the grain, which, I mean, the aim of the plant, although not to feed us, is to produce seeds for the next generation. So making grain seems like a good idea. So why would you make this extra spikelet that is effectively kind of useless? And uselessness is one of these things that we um, don't really know why it's... Or to put it the other way, like, no. Uselessness, why is it? <laughs> why is it? Yeah, so sometimes we observe things in, in plants and we can't immediately understand what the use of it is. Why is it still there? And um, the idea of evolution is that it sort of optimizes the plant over thousands, millions of years. Um, so why have something that doesn't have an, a very obvious use? And there's another structure in um, in sorghum and related grasses um, that there is the, that the seed-bearing spikelet, so the one that actually makes the seed, the grain, um, it produces an awn. And I had to look up what an awn is. It's, it's um, because I'm not familiar with the word, but it's like this little spiky, dry thing that sticks out. It's like a little needle structure, but it's not, spi it's not like a needle of a cactus. Um, now, I would say it's a very long whisker. It's like yeah, a whisker. A is a good whisker. Word. Just has like one long whisker that goes out, and that's called an awn. And yeah, that also like um, that we see that for example also in wheat, um, and we don't really know what these things are are good for. Um, in uh, in wheat, we know that they can um, be involved in in photosynthesis, but in sorghum, we have no idea. Uh, and so that's what we, what the researchers of the study actually wanted to figure out. First of all, the, the sterile spikelet, the one that doesn't produce the seed, why is that there? And then the on, why is that there? Does that have any function? 
And there there are some clues. So as Yoram said, they already knew that the Orn in wheat has some some role in in capturing carbon. Um, but then also with this sterile spikelet, like it is green, which is always a good clue that it might be photosynthesizing. So it might be, you know, um, helping provide energy for the rest of the plant. And it also stays green longer than the seed bearing spikelet. So there's this idea that maybe the seed bearing spikelet kind of gets stuck into making seeds. And meanwhile, the, the sterile spikelet could keep on photosynthesizing nearby. There are also some other discussions about its role in kind of sex and seed dispersal, so that it might help maybe um, the pollen get trapped or that it might help the seeds kind of spread after um, they've developed. So there are some functions, but there's nothing that's super clear in, in these species. So yeah, so the researchers then uh, did an experiment and what they wanted to see is whether or not um, the different tissues that we're looking at here are photosynthetically active so is the seed bearing a uh, seed bearing spikelet photosynthetically active so the one that makes the grain what about the one that's sterile and what about the own um, and a good way to see whether or not these things are photosynthetically active um, is to see if they uh, are able to capture carbon from the air if they are able to fix carbon dioxide that means that there is photosynthesis happening in that uh, in that tissue um, and a good way to do that is to just take carbon dioxide that's labeled in some way and put that on the plant and the plant takes it up and then you can track the carbon that comes from the carbon dioxide and see if it ends up somewhere in the metabolism. The way you mark the carbon dioxide is that you use, for example, a radioactive carbon dioxide that's called um, 14C carbon dioxide. Um, and when you use that, you can uh, sort of have this gas, uh, put it around the plant tissue, and then photosynthesis happens, the carbon dioxide is taken up, and then you can track the ca a radioactive signal from the leaf tissue. And then uh, you can measure how much you have, and then you can tell how photosynthetically active your tissue is. Yeah, so the radioactive carbon dioxide, basically, it does everything the same as a normal carbon dioxide and the plant sees it and uses it the same way, but it, it weighs slightly differently. It, it just looks different or it's a bit heavier, in fact, is, is the reality, which means that we can then see that weight difference as that carbon then moves throughout the plant. So you see this heavy carbon dioxide get changed into simple sugars. And then you can also see these, these sugars, which now have that heavy carbon in them, get moved throughout the plant. And that's exactly what the researchers did. They looked at how the carbon dioxide came into different parts of the plant and then if it moved from one part to the other part. Yeah. And the details are all a little bit more complicated, but we, what uh, we have to understand from, from the findings that they did is that they found more of the heavy carbon being enriched in the sterile spikelets, so the ones that don't make the seed, than in the ones that make the seed or the own, which gives... Um, which goes into the, the, the direction that... Um, you have photosynthesis happening in the sterile spikelet, but not in the other two structures. Um, and together with that works the, uh, is the result that they found also stomata on the sterile spikelet, but um, no stomata on the seed-bearing spikelet and the own. And stomata are these little tiny openings in um, plants that actually let carbon dioxide in and oxygen out, so they're vital for photosynthetic action. These things can be open and closed, and um, so uh, they are absolutely crucial to have photosynthesis happening because if you don't have the openings, you don't have the carbon dioxide, and then you can't fix carbon. So apart from finding this sterile spikelet does photosynthesis result in their sorghum species, which is sorghum bicolor, I think, um, they also checked in two other species, which are kind of in the same group, but actually have diverged like 15 million years ago. Um, and they saw the same sort of results, which just suggests that this difference that you see with the sterile spikelet and the um, active seed-bearing spikelet seems to be something that's conserved across a lot of these species. In another line of experiments that they did, um, they then looked at the expression level of genes that are related to photosynthesis. And again, they could see that in the sterile spikelets, um, that this went up. So there was more expression of photosynthetic genes, which is an indicator that photosynthesis is happening in that tissue. And there was hardly anything happening in the own or the seed-bearing spikelet, so the one that makes the grain. Um, so therefore, there's another line of evidence that shows that uh, one tissue is actively doing photosynthesis, while the other two are not really involved in it. 
What I think at this point is really important is that so far the researchers hadn't broken anything. So I think Yoram and I have just talked about this quite often on the podcast before, but usually as molecular researchers, when we want to find out how something works, we break it and then we see what goes wrong. So in this case, they didn't break any genes and stop them from functioning. They just broke the sterile spikelet. Their aim being to see if the sterile spikelet really is photosynthesizing and helping give carbon to um, the seed producing spikelet then breaking it should mean that there's less energy going to the seed-producing spikelet. So, so, so what they saw then um, was a reduction in yield. Um, so they cut off all of the sterile spikelets uh, and then measured the grain at the end of the growing season. And um, they had between like 8 to 12% less grain, so um, a significant decrease in, in the yield, which shows that despite being like sort of sterile and an appendix, the spike that was actually involved in fixing carbon and channeling it into the grain. Otherwise, it wouldn't have had an effect on it. So that means it had an evolutionary function, and that explains why the sterile spikelet was was kept around for so long, because it does its part in capturing carbon from the air and putting that into sugars that can be used by the plant in, for example, making grain. On the other hand, they didn't really resolve what was happening with the little awn, that that whisker thing. So they found out that it wasn't really photosynthesizing, but that kind of left them a bit uncertain of what its role was. And maybe it's just useless. Maybe it is. Maybe there will be another study that figures out what's going on there. Um, I had a couple of questions. So like when they snapped off the spikelet... Um, I was wondering what would happen if you removed it at an earlier stage instead of because I think they did it at a bit of a later stage and I can imagine that would be a bit traumatic for the plant maybe to have a bit of it snapped off just as it was making grains like maybe it loses some some water or so I was wondering if that played a role in the the loss of yield um, and then I was also thinking so this this spikelet is currently playing a role in photosynthesizing what happens if instead of having a spikelet there you just put a leaf there instead yeah. Which is obviously the ultimate thing of that, you know. I, I guess I would be the most efficient uh, in terms of photosynthesis. Uh, with that, you always um, open like a whole can of worms of developmental biology because mm -hmm. like these two spikelets, they come from um, a similar sort of um, stem tissue, stem cell tissue. So they are sort of programmed to become spikelets and then it's sort of a downstream decision is become the sterile spikelet or the seed-bearing spikelet. Um, and I guess, and I'm taking this completely out of the blue here, like I, I don't have any good evidence for that, but I guess that um, the cell program to make a leaf is sort of further away than the distinction between a sterile spikelet that does a little bit of photosynthesis and the seed-bearing spikelet that just makes the grain. Um, but... I could imagine. I mean, that was also like something I was I was imagining why it would be helpful to have this pair is imagine if you're developing the pair and then something happens to the producing spikelet, maybe it gets eaten, then maybe this sterile guy can still be reprogrammed to not be sterile. Like I wonder if there's a point where the switch could be made by the plant if something yeah. happens. Um, I'm not sure. It might be already developmentally programmed and set in stone, so it might not be able to be changed, but you know. Yeah. And I mean, like, there are the potential of having multiple different advantages. So, you know, the reason for keeping something around in evolutionary terms doesn't have to be there's a reason. It's often like a lot of small different things which overall produce maybe a really, really tiny advantage to those plants, but. But still that's an enough. advantage. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so that's um, some more insights into. Um, the structure of sorghum and why this previously sort of, I don't think many people called it absolutely useless, but sort of mysterious part of the plant where we had no good idea what why it's there. Now we have a much better idea. And that was uh, sterile spikelets contribute to yield in sorghum and related grasses by Taylor Aubuchon Elder from the lab of Elizabeth A. Kellogg, published in the plant cell this November and linked in the show notes below. This is where the fun begins. Um, <laughs> the first thing I want to mention is something that came up in the nature briefing, just because 
I mean, you guys have heard me probably rant quite a few times already on the blog that I don't care about space. It's not that I don't think space is beautiful and amazing and wonderful and cold and heartless. It's just that I think that there's probably better ways that we as humans should spend our resources. And I think that we shouldn't be allowed to go into space until we've spent at least 50 to 100 years behaving properly on Earth. Um, (laughs) And like not screwing things up, for example, um, then we're allowed to go to the next level. But anyway, I did see some information in the nature briefing that actually made me excited about space. And this is the finding that Jupiter's moon Europa probably glows in the dark, which is just super cool. Like a glow in the dark moon. Is it proper glow in the dark or is it fluorescence? (laughs) Um, It's proper glow in the dark. um, But I think it's, not ideal because it's it it glows because of being bombarded by radiation from Jupiter. Mm -hmm. So I think you probably not want to be in the way of that radiation. Um, And also it should be as bright under your feet as full moonlight. Um, So I think that would also... That's too bright. I think also that's a a bit blinding. So it's less of a glow and more of a like, bam! Um... (laughs) But yeah, there's salty compounds on this moon that would give a kind of slightly green tinge, which sounds okay. pretty. Yeah. Yeah. I'd do that. I'd go there. Although like if I mentioned from my unorganic chemistry classes, what we had to do to get um, from salt compounds sort of these these uh, emission lines, it would usually involve putting them in fire. And if the conditions are any, anything... Um, as similar to to that, so as as severe as putting it in fire, I really don't wouldn't want to be on Europa. I think it would be nice to be. What is it on like next to Jupiter? Right, it's one of Jupiter's moons. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. So standing on Jupiter, which also is a bad idea, but looking at Gaff, the sky and have a glowing it, right? a glowing uh, moon, that would be good. Okay, I think you can't stand on on Jupiter because it's a no, gas giant, and also I it don't would think anybody like <laughs> its its gravity would immediately destroy you. So I don't think anybody's claiming that we should inhabit Europa. I hope I hope nobody's had come up with that idea. Yeah, I, I, I yeah I'm I know too little about that, but I know that some people think that one of the um, the Jupiter moons could be a target, could be an interesting target. Um, for a colony. Leave it alone, guys. Like, just leave it alone. They didn't annoy you. They just sat there quietly glowing. Like, <laughs> let them do their thing in peace. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, no, I have something that segues straight on from that, so I'm going to okay, jump in good, again. Go for it. <laughs> this is something that is on low news, and I have to admit that I do not know how good a source that is. Um, but it's great. Scientists 3D print microscopic Star Trek spaceship that moves on its own. And I don't know <laughs> if you've seen this, but I think the title anyway really explains everything. Basically, um, researchers at Leiden University, which is in Holland, I believe, mm-hmm. um, made a 15 micrometer, so 0.015 millimeter long replicate of the miniature Voyager from Star Trek. So they use a 3D printing to do this. And then they coat this thing in platinum. So then then when they can put it into a solution of hydrogen peroxide, it basically zooms around. There's a chemical reaction and it starts moving around. And by this method, they are understanding how like small objects move in liquid, which sounds a bit silly, but it's about understanding how these these objects move which has implications for example for um drug delivery into the human body um also like maybe cleaning wastewater micro swimmers as they're called could be used for that um and also understanding like biological micro swimmers so things like bacteria and also sperm and how they they travel through the body so it's kind of cool um the reason they printed this is because they had a 3d printer and they basically <laughs> wanted to like That's i mean a classic reason for anybody to print anything so yeah i i, I had to printer <laughs> i had to print something with it yeah um so i think that's the thing they they were researching different shapes um so boats but also like trimers and helices and and different shapes to sort of observe these different swimming behaviors but then like, as you said, they had the printer. Um, it was there. And um, <laughs> it sounds like 
one of the the scientists promised the other scientists that in the last week of his project, um, he was allowed to print whatever he wanted. So he was like a big Star Trek fan and just decided to go with um, this Voyager. But then the scientist who's telling the story is like, Additionally, it was also to show that the types of shapes we can print is almost limitless. <laughs> yeah. Although like, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at some of the pictures and there's a tugboat there that I find from its structure more impressive than the Star Trek Voyager spaceship because it has more intricate details in there. It has like a little chimney and like a little box. and. Um, I mean, yes, but... But also, like, this is boldly going where no man's got... Like, this is much more... Yeah, I know that for publicity, it's perfect to use the Star Trek yeah. Voyager, but just to show off what they can do, I'm very impressed with the tugboat. So, yeah, um, go look at the at the link. Um, it's some really cool uh, scanning electron microscopy images of the tiny structures that they made. Um, and one is, like, a spirally no uh, noodle. It's, like, a, a shape of pasta. I mean, you could also call it just a, a, a helix. But to me, it's just like they made the tiniest um, pasta dish. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, learning in pea plants, right? We had this this paper about the reproduction of an experiment where you had pea plants growing in these Y-shaped mazes made from tubes with light and wind in them. And the idea was that you can teach um, with sort of Pavlovian uh, imprinting, you can teach pea plants to move into one direction or the other. I remember, and I remember the take-home message was, it doesn't work. You can't teach plants. Yeah, um, which to me sounded like a very um, sane um, conclusion, but but who am I? I? I'm not a plant researcher anymore, so um, that's why I'm not part of the scientific discussion, but the original authors responded to that on Dude, Eli. Can you not, like... <laughs> undermine the credibility of our entire podcast by being like who am i to comment on plant science and don't you edit that out you keep in that scolding you deserve to be scolded young man keep that all in uh, um so yeah but uh the my, my my thing that i found um this week is that the original authors responded also on elife where the original um sort of the reprodu reproductive study was published and they sort of looked at the reproduction and were like, um, okay, now we know why this didn't work. Um, we, you, you left the light on in the experiment chamber between the runs because uh, the idea was that you had light as an imprinting source and they say um, the light was kept on and therefore um, the light in the little mazes was not strong enough to actually work as an imprinting signal. So there was too much sort of background lighting that could leak into the mazes and that would distort the experiment and therefore the experiment didn't work. So that, that makes like logical sense, that argument to me. So if you like ring a bell and give me a treat, like, but then keep on ringing the bell, I'm not going to associate that bell with the treat anymore. So I can understand the logic behind that argument. Yeah, or rather, it's not the bell that were kept ringing, but you gave a treat while there's like full bowls of food everywhere around um, because the light was actually sort of the food the signal. Treat, that's true, yeah. Yeah, but still, like you, you don't have a clear signal anymore. You don't have a clear positive um, sort of reinforcing signal anymore because you have this background signal. Um, so that sounds to me like an interesting point. So right now we're at the point where we have the original study that says pea plants can learn and we have a reproduction study that says they can't learn. Um, and we have the, the point that maybe the reproduction study didn't, um, yeah, had some, some flaws and therefore couldn't find the same results. Although the reproduction study made a um, big point about the fact that they tried to mimic the original conditions as closely as possible. So I wonder if there will be room for another response from sort of the reproduction study authors. Um, let's let's see. But I I took that in also to show how the scientific pr uh, process works. Like it's not just you publish a paper, you publish a paper and then you sort of give it to other researchers to discuss it. And then you have a back and forth about it. And sometimes it's in direct responses. Sometimes you find it in other papers that work on the same field. But you have an ongoing discussion. And through the discussion, we learn more and we understand what's going on. So that's why I put that in here as well to, to show that this is not a sign that anything is wrong here. It's just that the process continues and explores more interesting things. 
Uh, speaking of papers that came out recently, I want to give a shout out to something that I saw that is a review in Current Opinion Plant Biology. I have to admit, I didn't read the review, but it's by um, Noemi Sfolaccia, I think is the right way of saying that. Um, and it's called Arabidopsis Primary Root Growth. Let it grow. Can't hold it back anymore. And I have nothing more to say than that is a fantastic title and well done, <laughs> Noemi and colleagues. Thank you. Oh, yeah. They, they must have been... If I don't know when they came up with this, but if I imagine I, it would have been me, I came up with this like somewhere earlier in my project before it was fully submitted and accepted. And I, ha I was sitting on this. I would be so afraid that somebody else comes up with this before I could get it to publishing. Um, so it must have been such such a major relief for them to see this accepted and in print and be like, yes, nobody stole our joke. I mean, I also have to imagine that like every time they sat down to write their manuscript, they just ended up having like, let it go, let it go stuck <laughs> in their head. And they were just struggling Either that or they loved it so much and that was powering their manuscript. So I personally, when I was writing my thesis and doing the figures, I listened to a unhealthy amount of Taylor Swift because it was the only thing that kept me sane during the painstaking process of making figures. So maybe they were just like inspired by Frozen parts one <laughs> and two while they were writing. Yeah, that could, that could very well be. Um, so I have another sort of thing that ties back in with something we talked about before last week we talked about um when i talked about my favorite plant these uh, plants that were believed to be extinct that were rediscovered on this roundabout somewhere in in the uk mm -hmm. and um today i found uh, or this week i found a fact about the same thing happening to a spider um, so there was a spider that was believed to be extinct and they found it again and this time not on a roundabout but on a uk military base in surrey um, so the spider in question is the great fox spider or Alopecosa fabrilis and um, this spider is a nocturnal spider and it doesn't make webs, it hunts its prey um, and sort of, yeah, is an, is an active hunter um, and that made it very hard to, to follow it and discover it because it's nocturnal and it doesn't make webs so there's not really a trace of it when it goes around and, and unless you directly observe it, you can't really find it. Um, so it's uh, 27 years ago in 1993 was the last time that one of these spiders was seen and um, because it was such a long time um, since then people believe that it might have gone extinct um, but now they found it in an underdeveloped uh, portion of a military installation in Surrey in England and um, there was uh, an interesting quote in an article that I read about it from the researcher who found it and he says as soon as my torch fell on it I knew what it was i was elated he said with coronavirus there have been lots of ups and downs this years and i also turned 60 so it was a good celebration of that and i just imagining him being like oh yeah there's a spider that has been extinct like or believed to be extinct for almost 30 years but it's also my birthday so i'm going to take it as a birthday present for myself you gotta uh, take the wins where you can <laughs> yeah I, I i found it quite charming um, and another thing that I, I learned from, from this story is that military grounds are actually very good for wildlife um, because they are not being developed uh, for urban development or agriculture. Um, so they are usually left quite undisturbed. I mean, there's, there's the occasional drills happening and there's like things exploding and so on, but they're not constantly exploding and not <laughs> exploding and not uh, on the entire area. So... That means also, this this um, the Wikipedia for this species says it's very fast and agile, so maybe it would just run out of the way if an explosion yeah. happened. Just like whoop. Maybe that's also why it was so hard to find because it's battle hardened and it can take cover and. Um, it actually looks almost. It almost has camouflage based um, fur patterning. I would say it's it's got a little. I mean, it's obviously yeah. camouflaging with the ground, but it's it doesn't look like it would be out of place on a kind of desert themed military base. Which <laughs> yes, well done, spider. Um, so yeah, so that's why um, there's a good chance to find things like unusual things on military bases or military training grounds um, because yeah, they, they are left so undisturbed. I just have so much respect for spiders that hunt their prey by like, I'm not going to say that the ones that make webs are necessarily lazy, but I'm just saying like the ones that like run and jump are much cuter and really incredible. Like little jumping spiders, they're just... They're very, very sweet and, like, 
It's I, much more cat-like. Like, of the spiders, I would say a jumping spider is a more cat-like spider. <laughs> I don't know if I would f- say the same thing, but I, I understand your feeling. Um, like, I am very much afraid of spiders, but I also think that the ones that, that jump and hunt and run, um, I have more... Also not more respect, but I I, I understand their hustle and <laughs> they got going hustle. spider I, bros. I, <laughs> I think I've, I've mentioned before that when I was a kid, I used to like collect spiders from around the house and put them inside my bedroom because I fa- found them charming. Um, specifically, like the daddy long legs were really, really common. So there's like the ones with the tiny little pinpoint body and then these like huge legs. Um, but they were like, they were kind of the, the boring spiders because they were everywhere. So finding a jumping spider was like a little treat because then you could like really like, it was a real pet that you could interact with and you could kind of put your finger near and it would jump away. And it was like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I also had a cat, so it's not like my parents weren't giving me pets, but... Yeah, but you chose your own pets. Cool. Um, the final thing I want to talk about today is an article that came out in Functional Ecology. Um, it's by Ortiz et al. Um, it came out in November. And it's called The Visual Traits Honestly Signal Floral Rewards at Community Level. That was hard to get out. Um, and this is just something that we've talked about a little bit on the blog and on the podcast, this concept of honest signaling. And it's the idea that sometimes plants give signals to other organisms, um, mostly insects, um, which have value because they tell the truth. Um, and this is then a win for both the the person giving the signal, the plant, and the 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 one receiving it so the insect or the bird because both of them win by having the knowledge so a really obvious example is with pollinators so a flower is attracting a pollinator and looking a certain way to tell a bee hey i'm the sort of the the flower the type of nectar that you like another example that we actually covered on the blog was these um blueberries where the bluer the berry is, the more nutritious it is. So it might actually be an advantage to make this blue coloring, which um, shows birds who see very nicely blue colors um, that the berry has more nutrition for them. And that's also a benefit for the plant because before the berries turn blue, they might not be ripe, so the seeds might not be developed properly. So it's like a win-win situation, and that's why they're called honest signals. Um, And here the authors did a kind of large scale trial looking at 98 different species of plant in Mediterranean plant communities. And they were trying to see if certain floral visual signals were associated with the rewards that those flowers give. So they're matching the size, the color, the symmetry, and the kind of display of the flower with the rewards of getting pollen and nectar, which are things that like bees might like. And overall, they found that there these were there were honest signals contained by these flowers. So um, flower size was generally um, correlating with good quantities of pollen and nectars, and then um, the actual concentration of the nectar. So I think like the sugariness of it was then positively associated with um, the color contrast of the different flowers. Um, and this is kind of a really nice, like quite convincing demonstration that there is this correlation between reward and um, visual cues that can be perceived by bees. And the authors then su- suggest that from far away, the bee can like scan for the bigger flowers to look for the, the ones that have a lot of nectar and pollen. And then when they get closer, they can look at these different um, chromatic visual signals to see where like the nectar might be a little bit extra tasty. So yeah, I think it's kind of a, a cool study. And I like this idea of co-evolution where everybody's like working together to both get what they want out of the situation but why are the ones with the less sweet nectar not just also making the very colorful contrasty flowers to attract the bees and trick them Um, because we have so much so much tricking and mimicry and so on in ecology why is that not happening there like is there yeah i think (laughs) i'm not sure what the reason is i um so there's there's pros and cons of doing it both both ways, right? So tricking can be really beneficial, but only if the amount of tricksters is not too high. Because if it's too high, then the the one who's tricked, so the, the bee in this case, quickly learns that that's a trick and then nobody gets pollinated yeah. anymore. So there's like this with mimicry, you always have to have that the one who is being mimicked comes in larger numbers than the the mimicker because mm-hmm. like so this is this is common with poisonous animals like if you're a non-poisonous butterfly and you're mimicking a poisonous one then 
if there's only five of them and there's like 500 of you, nobody's going to learn that those color patterns are poisonous because they're just going to keep on eating the tasty butterflies, right? So this is like weird. So I'm not sure what the exact reasons are, but I think there's always this weird game of of trade-offs and and evolutionary war and yeah. yeah. No, but But we should also We should also definitely talk about dishonest signals on the blog because that's definitely playing a big role in pollination, right? Yeah. No, but it's a, it's a, that's a very good point that I didn't think of um, because I also imagine it would be hard then to um, both have the genetic programming to in, within the same species to have sort of the, the taste, the, the honest signal and the dishonest signal at the same time. So you would need rather like a different species coming in with a dishonest signal. And if you're just looking within one species, um, you probably won't see well- that. Actually, interestingly, we did something about this on the blog with an orchid that um, attracts bees, but then the orchid has two different genders. So some of the flowers are male and some of them are female. And the male orchid, it gives the pollen to the bee, but it also smacks the bee really hard when it gives it the pollen. And that makes the bee not want to go to that kind of orchid anymore. So instead it goes to another orchid, which looks different because the male and female orchid of the same species look very, very different. And therefore it actually immediately brings the male pollen onto the female flower. So this is like this weird process where the plant has set itself up really nicely because by punching the bee, the bee avoids other male flowers and goes straight to the female and immediately delivers the package. And it, yeah, it's a win for the plant. Yeah, yeah, true. That could be something that could work as well in the honest signaling. But yeah, no, that's very in- interesting. Like the the ecology and the interaction between different species of, of very different kingdoms that makes, that's fascinating to me. Like the, I love it so much. The way these things co- co-evolved and, and came together and... Um, I mean, we're always looking at sort of the end product of it, how it's working together, like the clockwork that's working nicely together, but also thinking about how it evolved to be that very efficient clockwork um, is always um, yeah, blowing my mind a little bit. I mean, I think, as you said, like in the end, everybody wants just to get themselves ahead. But like this, this pollination thing is really nice because without the bees, the plants can't have sex. So there's like really a strong limitation. I mean, certain types of plants, obviously, but... My last fact of the day is um, a big study that was performed in the Amazon uh, basin about um, the reasons for tree death. There was a massive study that mapped all of the the trees, or not all of the, uh, mapped a big population of trees. They followed 120,000 different trees and investigated uh, the reasons for the death of 18,000 of them over, uh, I don't know how long the period, but a a rather long period. And um, they... What they, have, they described in the article that we're linking is that they had to do some sort of like tree CSI when they found um, a dead tree. They had to figure out what are the reasons because that was the, the the thing that they were interested in. And so they had to figure out like was it like a pest? Was it something internal? Was it sort of natural cause of death? Was it environmental cause of death? Um, and so on. And then um, now they published um, the results. They published them in Nature Communications. And um, yeah, it's a it's a massive study with. Uh, many many authors actually i don't know how many there are but if you extend the list of the authors it almost fills my entire screen so um obviously such a large study took a lot of manpower and woman power to to perform and really yeah uh, say woman power. isn't that right I, th- I i read that i heard that before that you say manpower or woman power <laughs> I would just say people power. People, people power. might be non-binary. Okay, so people power. Um, and uh, yeah, so the main reasons that they found were um, the growth rate. So things that grow fast, they tend to die young. I think we had something like this on the show before. Um, uh, and that was the main predictor. Um, but within the, the work, uh, within the publication, there is more other causes and sort of more more detailed explanations and so on. So if you're interested in that, you can check that out. Um, but overall, it's just like if, if, if meta- metabolism speeds up, that means also that the tree doesn't live as long and dies earlier, which then has implications to calculate the carbon capture potential of the Amazon forest and, and, and so on. So for climate modeling, data like this is very important because this gives us, um, again, more detail and better models. 
yeah, I think um, that's it for the fun facts. So we can go on to talk about cats. If you have any cat facts, Yoram. I do I have, have a cat, a cat fact. fact this week. Oh, good. Cat fact. Uh, yeah, I found personally a new uh, marsupial in Australia. And I'm sorry, Tegan, that this is an Australia story that you don't present. Um, I'll say that you found it personally. <laughs> Good, well done. <laughs> yeah, within, uh-huh. within my downtime, I traveled down to Australia and had a, I just had a look can't, where people looked You can't get before. in, right? They won't even let you in, your arm. I mean, the marsupial that I found is a glider. And so I just did it like the glider and I just glided into Australia um, and they couldn't even track me. Now, so what actually happened is that some scientists um, had a closer look at a glider species and gliders are these um, little marsupials. They look like mice with big ears and a long tail and a little bit fluffier and check out the pictures. They actually look quite cute and they live in the trees. They are nocturnal and they are called gliders because they jump from tree to tree and they sort of expand um, their their limbs and their skin flaps between and it helps them to glide from tree to tree. Um, and what was believed to be just one species turned out to be actually three different species uh, spread across the continent. And they f- uh, figured that out with a new DNA sequencing method uh, where they could then actually separate the different genomes from one another. And that meant that they suddenly found new species there f- within like a set of animals where they believed there was only one species. Um, and yeah, uh, that's that's really cool that they could uh, use the... Like with the new I mean, technologies it, that they found that, but also it's cool because now we have to we have pictures of gliders that we can look at and they're really cute. I mean, unfortunately, it also means that <laughs> because there's now three species instead of one, it means that each of these species has much uh, fewer numbers of individuals and a much reduced um, habitat range. So they are now much threatened than when they were in one species, which is true. One, <laughs> yeah one downside um while you're looking at gliders i strongly encourage you to google a feather tail glider and just pop onto google images with that because it's pretty much the cutest thing in the world Australia gives good marsupial i would say um and with that i think we're going to end the show so if you want to find out more about us you can find me on instagram or facebook that's at plants and pipettes and you can talk to me uh over on twitter that's at plants pipettes you can also check out our blog. We release articles twice weekly. Um, this week we talked about why autumn leaves are turning red um, as opposed to just yellow or orange. And we also talk about what happens when you put whole plants into the darkness. Uh, you can also go to iTunes or wherever you can rate podcasts and give us um, all of the stars and leave a nice comment that would really help us to be visible and uh, attract new listen- listeners. And you can also tell your friends about the show. That would be really cool. And just last week, we recorded, no, two weeks ago, we recorded another episode of our plant book club with our friend Ellen Earhart. So you can check that out. This time we talk about plants that are involved in making alcohol and drinking alcohol. So, yeah. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And that's it. And that's all. Bye. Goodbye.